Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is the New York Times bestselling author of eight books. He is a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, a former ESPN.com columnist, former staff writer for AJ's Newsday and the Nashville Tennessean. He writes a weekly column for The Athletic, contributes to a number of other outlets, outlets ranging from Bleacher Report to The Wall Street Journal to Sports Illustrated to CNN.com. His latest book, Football for a Buck, draws on more than 400 interviews to unearth all the salty, untold stories of one of the craziest sports entities to ever have captivated America. It is a pleasure to welcome back Holm Oates superfan Jeff Perlman to WLAE Sports Talk New York. Welcome back, Jeff. You got a problem with Holland Oates? No, not at all. <laughs> you know, I'm the one that say. sent you, excuse me, I'm the one that sent you the autograph album, so I definitely do not have a oh, yeah. problem with Holland Oates. Wait, I just want you to know, I swear to God, not just saying this, so my parents, my, uh, my parents, my wife and kids are so sick of me talking about the USFL that they always banish me to the office to do these uh, interviews, and I'm staring at that awesome sign <laughs> along the Red Legs album, <laughs> which I think awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, first of all, I have to tell you that I am so inspired by this project. And and the reason's a bit selfish. Um, As I know, this is a passion project for you. you, And today's publishing environment has changed quite a bit. And the fact that the idea of this book has been in your mind for well over nine years since you first pitched it gives guys like AJ and me hope for passion projects like the one we're working on. So this book's lineage actually traces back to an AP English class at Mayo Peck High School where Mr. Height assigned the class a 20-page paper on a topic of their choosing for the final project. So this is 1999. The USFL had folded five years earlier. What was it about the league that had a teenage Jeff Perlman interested enough to want to do a school project on it? All right, to correct you, I, I don't want to question the boys. 1990, not 1999. Oh, uh, yeah. right. it's okay. No, 1998, right. No, I had it. I, you I read it wrong. You did it correctly, right. but it had the year wrong. Right, exactly. Yeah. You really just screwed up in a major way. And I, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. But, uh, well, I, was, um, I just love the USFL. Like, I love the USFL. I always loved the USFL. And when I was, I was 18 years old, senior or 17, I was a senior in high school. And uh, our final project was a paper of your choice. A twenty-page paper on the subject of your choice, and I, um, I told my professor, my professor, my English teacher, I said I want to, uh, want to do the USFL, and he's like, eh, I don't know, really, and I was like, yeah, and he let me, and I wrote forty pages instead of twenty, and the one thing I've realized through the years, or the one thing I've realized while promoting this book, really, is there's no way in hell that guy read forty pages on the USFL, like. <laughs> Imagine, because all I'm saying is I am a college professor. I mean, I'm an adjunct professor. But, and if I assign 20 pages and someone hands me 40, I'm probably sending it back and saying the assignment was 20. There's no way now if I'm a high school teacher, I'm two weeks removed from summer, I'm reading 40 pages. So there's just no way. But, and it, so that was not, it's not like I wrote the book because I wrote that paper. I just think that, that paper uh, sort of explains my insane fascination with the USFL. Absolutely. And, you know, it's also great to talk about something positive from someone's high school years this week. And full disclosure, AJ and I don't have access to your high school yearbook nor your 1990 calendars. But so, um, you know. Well, wait. Here's what I can tell you factually. Number one, I never kissed a girl in high school. So I wasn't having sex in high school. Number two, I never got drunk in high school. I did 
um, and my parents will verify this, I once took, when they went out, I drank, I think, three or four of their wine coolers. And they came home, and I felt so guilty that I told them immediately. And they were like, my parents are very laid back. They were like, eh, who cares? Could go to bed. And I went... I went to, my dad used to smoke cigars, and I did take one of his cigars, I think, and smoked it in the backyard. And I told him that, and he's like, eh, that's the worst you're going to do. We're okay. But, but how so, do you feel about beer? I don't know. I'm allergic to beer. I don't drink beer. <laughs> okay. But he, I'm actually allergic to beer. And do you put ketchup on you? Well, let's forget. Yeah. Let's keep yeah, moving yeah. on. Uh, I know you had reservations about the sellability of this project, but every league or team that folds always has some sentimentality attached to it. The Rebel League about the WHA, Loose Balls about the ABA, the Forever Boys about the Senior League of Baseball, Forgotten Glory, the story of the Cleveland Barons hockey team, you know, books on the Expos. Why did you think that this would be a tough sell? And right now, your book is currently number one on Amazon in business money, small business and entrepreneurship. Franchises number five in books in sports outdoor football. So why were you so apprehensive about the potential sales of this book? Well, I wasn't. I wouldn't say I was as apprehensive as um, publishers were. I mean, it was hard. But the thing is this. I knew it wasn't going to be my bestseller. Like, that would be – I've had books that are sold really well, first of all. I feel like I understand publishing a bit. And you, it makes it easier if you can hitch your book to a market, especially a book-buying market. So Favre, he just comes along with a ton of diehard Packer fans. You know, the Showtime Lakers that comes along with not just diehard Laker fans, but diehard Magic and Cream fans. You know, Walter Payton, Chicago, he's iconic. The USFL, I don't know that many USFL fans. I certainly don't know any USFL fans as big as I was. Um, you know, and it, it fades over time, and it's like, it just wasn't an obvious market. So I actually always understood uh, publishing houses being reluctant to sort of take a shot on it. But I just really, 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 really wanted to write it. So I just really wanted to write it. I knew if I wrote it, I was going to bust my ass promoting it. Like, that was the one thing I could tell them. I was like, you give me a shot to write this. I will bust my ass harder than I ever have before to promote this thing, which I have. I have to imagine that through the process, it must have gotten very interesting. Because one of the many personalities um, that you chronicle in this book, one of them is the current president. And it's scary to me, because if you look at his time in the USFL, it's basically pulling all his greatest hits from his playbook. You know, you start with the meeting that was blocks away at the from Trump Towers at the Pierre Hotel, where he had a clandestine meeting with Pete Rozelle, who at that point was a commissioner of the NFL. And he's trying to basically, you know, leave the USFL to join the NFL. And, you know, Donald Jr. was only seven years old, so there's no way anyone can blame him for that meeting. (laughs) And Um, nothing was done in Russian. Exactly. Then you have him treating the other USFL owners like Mexico's president, Enrique Pena Nieto, with Doug Flutie playing the role of the wall, as he actually sends a letter to the other owners saying, this is going to be great. You know, I'm surprised he didn't say huge for the league, and I think everyone should pay for it. So he he wanted the entire league to pay for Doug Flutie. And then... Lastly, John Bassett, someone who was a very well-respected businessman, the guy actually founded the WHA, owned many sports franchises. In 84, he's diagnosed with brain cancer. As soon as that happened and he started fading, Trump basically treated him the same way he treated John McCain. So I guess the question for you is, I'm assuming that you're in the process of writing this book during the election. 
What's going through your mind when you're researching all this and you're seeing, you know, some of these Trump rallies and some of his I mean, talking I mean, basically, points? Basically, the, the, the bell going to ding, 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 like, ding, and finally, this book can be marketable. <laughs> well, my number one thing was um, just as a, I don't know, just sound corny, like as an American. You know, like there were guys running for president who I disagreed with, but who I thought were certainly sort of, you know, honorable. John Kasich is a perfect example. Like, if, if he were president, I wouldn't agree with half of what he says, but honorable guy. You know, Jeff Bush, same thing, honorable guy. It was really you know, weird working on this book and sort of, as you alluded to, seeing him use the same tactics he used 30 years ago now, just fill in Mexico wall for Doug Flutie or Russia for Pete Rozelle. I mean, I thought it was funny when people were saying, when people were questioning whether he would actually meet with Russia, why he wouldn't do that. What, like, he literally met with the commissioner of the NFL, told him he would gladly throw the US of L under the bus while he was the US of L owner. So I just find it, I, in a way, I kept saying to my wife, I was like, I, I can't believe Hillary Clinton isn't touching any of this. He's so past his prologue. And I think the problem is that there's a step in there you have to explain. Like, a lot of people don't know the U.S. of So you can't just say, just like the USFL, you did this. You have to sort of uh, take someone's hand and walk them through it. But my number one thing was just, I can't, I mean, the Flutie thing was unbelievable. When he sends a letter to the Leafs saying, you guys, to the other team saying, you need to pay, I'm going to sign that Flutie and you're going to pay for it. And I'm learning about this right around the same time. He's saying, we're going to build a wall and Mexico's going to pay for it. And I'm thinking, this is, that Flutie is Mexico. Yeah. Doug Flutie is the wall. Doug Flutie is the wall. Right. And the other owners of Mexico. It was, it was crazy. It was frustrating. It was exasperating. Um, and I've always said, and I really mean this, I think you could be Sean Hannity. I think you could be Chris Matthews. There's no way to come away from researching the USFL and think, boy, this Donald Trump guy, he would make a great president. <laughs> yeah, it's also interesting because you chose, I don't know if you chose or your publishing company chose not to include his name in the title. And I, I have to imagine that his name would draw more people into the book if it was in the title. Was that something that you or the publishing company made a conscious choice not to include his name in the title? Um, I mean, it was never the working title for the book, actually, was The Useless. Well, my, I handed on the proposal, the, the, the title was Football for a Buck, but I never intended that to be the title. Then it was The Useless, because I liked that the NFL called the U.S. of other useless. Then my publisher, my editor, who I love, um, said that they really thought football, the word football, needs to be in the title, which pissed me off to no end. I think in hindsight they were right. It was never, it was never discussed, the idea of putting Trump in the title. Um, there was some discussion whether to put him on the cover. There ended up being a picture of him on the back cover. Um, I don't think we ever viewed it. I know I never viewed it as a Trump book. Right. Never. Especially when writing it, uh, I never viewed it as a Trump book. Uh, and now when, when it comes out, it's a funky little thing. You're promoting it as two different things. You're promoting, as a, you're promoting it and you're trying to get on ESPN, Fox Sports, and at the same time you're trying to get on Fox News and MSNBC. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's a weird thing, but I never thought to myself, I want to make this. I just wouldn't feel good about myself if I turned this into a Trump book just purely for marketing uh, efforts. Gotcha. And, and, and you know, I want to tell our viewers that that's only a portion of the book because what I really truly love about this book is realistically each team history and personalities could be a subject of a book each uh, of their own and I can see a great ESPN 30 for 30 on the San Antonio Gunslingers by far my favorite team 
some of your best writing, I, I think. Let's start with a couple of things on the gunslingers. My co-host, A.J. Carter, always loves to talk about odd injuries in sports. And I don't know <laughs> if he's ever heard about this injury, but by far the greatest sports injury. Could you fill our audience a little bit uh, about one of the most bizarre injuries in the history of sports? You're not talking about a sprained knee. I think you're not talking about yeah. the sprained knee. Well, it depends yeah. on what you call. <laughs> yeah, right. Is knee a euphemism? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. In the uh, I think it was the '85 season, the Gunslingers placed a person on the on the injured list um, with a strained groin. But what actually happened is he slammed his penis in a trunk. <laughs> but it it wasn't a uh, it wasn't a car trunk, which I thought for the longest time. It was a um, a steamer it was trunk. A trunk. It was a trunk, an equipment trunk in the locker room, and I um. There's so many questions. Right, hey, right, I, right. I don't have half of the answers. One. I, I, this, this wasn't like like like, like like David Cohn in the bullpen. Right. This was, did, uh, did, did the trunk have a male or a female name? This yeah. The... yeah, I could not. Like I couldn't find the player. I didn't actually track down the player who it happened to. I kept thinking to myself, and again, I am a very um, ordinary Jewish guy from New York. Like. I couldn't picture how this would happen to me. Like, I, I just couldn't picture it. How does that happen? Like, what? If I were stand, I feel like I would have to, I mean, to be too graphic, or have my penis hanging over the lid of the trunk in order for it to slam. I can't. But somehow, the thing was slammed in a trunk. And how, how clumsy can you be? Yeah. And maybe he looked I don't even know. I don't know. Yeah. Or, or was it Someone intentional? Trunk? Uh, I yeah, I uh, all right. I mean, we just went we're, from the we're moving around. Moving let's, on. Let's get to a higher plane here. So, so the gunslingers also have their own version of Moonlight Graham, as they have a punter named Buddy who has no statistics, but his backstory is awesome. Can you tell us a little bit more about Buddy and how he became a gunslinger? Yeah, it's the best. So, um, <laughs> the uh, they had a punter who they did not think was very good, and he wasn't very good. Their punter was a guy who punted for the New England Patriots. His name was Ken Hartley, I think. And they averaged about 29 a punt with the Gunslingers. And the owner of the Gunslingers was this really cartoonish man named Clinton Mangus. And uh, Mangus swore that his ranch hand, uh, Buddy Roberts, has a, uh, has a big leg. And he, he was a great punter at Freer High School, down right down the road in Freer. So he insisted we were going to sign Buddy Roberts. The Gunslingers are signing Buddy Roberts. And he tells the coach, he literally tells the coach, we got this guy, Buddy Roberts, I'm going to bring him in, he's going to be great. And Jim Bates, the future head coach of the Miami Dolphins, is like, uh, what? And but Clint Mangus insisted. So Buddy Roberts comes to practice, and of course he sucks. He needs four steps to get off a punt. Can't punt more than 20 yards. He's like 40 years old, you know, with like a gut. And he's in there punting, and he's as embarrassed as anybody else. But his boss is telling him, you're a punter. So uh, Clint Mangus puts him on the active roster, insists he fly to Portland for their game against the Breakers. He's wearing number eight. And Jim Bates is determined. I'm not putting Buddy Roberts in as our punter. He is not. You can't punt. So um, he tells the PR guy. They basically agree. Like you can't. The media can't know about this because it's so pathetic. So Buddy Roberts, number eight, is standing on the sideline during the game, but Jim Bates isn't putting him in. And one of the reporters turns to uh, Greg Singleton, the PR guy for the Gunslingers, and says, "Who's that? Who's that number eight on the sidelines?" And Greg's like, "Uh, I I don't know." He's like, "No, there's a number eight on the sideline." He's like, oh, yeah, that's Alvin White, our former backup. We signed him for this week. Uh, and the guy's like, that doesn't look like Alvin White. It looks a lot shorter and fatter. And it's like, he ended up like sort of how somehow worming his way around it. And um, Jim Bates insisted that he not 
be on the roster, and he only lasted one week. And then he, Buddy Roberts, as relieved as anyone, went back to being the Rams hand. <laughs> and that's not even the best gunslinger story of them all. If you took two seconds to, to Google Greg Fields, you'd find that he played from 79 to 85 with the Baltimore Colts, the Los Angeles Express, and San Antonio Gunslingers. He recorded 16.5 quarterback sacks in his career. But this guy is the real-life version of all three Hanson brothers from the Slapshot movies rolled into one. Tell us about Greg's run-in with a coach, a bodyguard, and an owner. Now, have you ever heard of, did you ever hear of Greg Fields before this book? Absolutely not. Uh, no. I'll be 100% honest, but I love the guy. (laughs) Yeah, I do too. Um, So Greg Fields was a, uh, he was a, um, he was with the Colts as a rookie out of Grambling in 1979. And he used to call wealthier teammates big paper. So a guy would walk around, and he'd be like, hey, the big paper boys, the big paper boys. Because he made almost no money, so they would call him back big paper. And his nickname quickly became big paper. Uh, he was cut by the Colts, signed by the Atlanta Falcons. He was in camp with the Falcons. And when the team went to cut him, he wouldn't leave. So they had to bring in an armed security officer to get him out of his room. He refused to leave. And that sort of ended his NFL run. So... um He's signed by the LA Express, plays for them in 83, and John Hadle's a coach in 84, and John Hadle decides, uh, decides uh, I have to cut Greg Fields. And the coaches are like, listen, you've you got to be careful. He's kind of crazy. Nah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. He calls Greg Fields in. He says, Greg, listen, I know I, I hate to do this, but blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, Greg Fields just punches him in the face, hits him in the face. <laughs> I'm going to kill you, you F you, blah, blah, blah. Guys come in. They pull him out. Or he starts calling in death threats to the team and to the coach and to the defensive coordinator. So they bring in, uh, they hire this guy, Nelson Mercado, Liberace bodyguard, to protect uh, John Hado and to follow around Greg Fields. So he, puts a, he starts following him around, puts a trace on his phone. Uh, Greg Fields, according to Nelson, who I talked to, was, um, was showing up at games with a gun in his trunk, all kinds of crazy stuff. And only in the U.S. of L, this is the beauty of the U.S. of L, He's signed by the San Antonio Gunslingers as a free agent because they need defensive line help. And toward the 85, end of the 85 season, the Gunslingers stopped paying their players. The great field follows the owner, Clint Mangus, home one day with a baseball bat <laughs> in his car. And he gets out and he says, listen, Gotta have my money. And I see where you live. I know you have money. I want to get paid. Mangus runs into the house, comes out with $17,000 in cash. Says, are we good? Great field says, yeah, we're good. You'll never see me again. And he drives off. And Greg Fields vanishes into the abyss. Unbelievable. Oh, my God. Um, today is actually the anniversary of the biggest trade in sports history. It's 35 years ago on wow. the very date yeah. the Chicago Blitz and the Arizona Wranglers traded rosters. Uh, really? How, how does that happen? You know, do, what's the story behind that? And, and we have a legendary guy involved with that as well. It's George Allen, right? Yeah. That is amazing that you uh, – today is the anniversary of that. I did not know. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. So basically, 83 season, you have the Chicago Blitz, a very good team. George Allen is a coach. His son, Bruce Allen, who's now with the Redskins, is a general manager. And you have the Arizona Wranglers, a very crappy team. Uh, Allen Richard is their quarterback. Calvin Murray's their running back. Not good. Uh, the Blitz are owned by a guy based out of Arizona, Dr. Ted Dietrich. And Dr. Ted Dietrich gets tired of traveling. He hates traveling to the Chicago games. He has to fly three hours on charter jet nine times a year. He's not happy about that. So he wants a solution. They come up with the solution being, um, we'll just trade the teams. That's the big USFL solution. Like, it's so USFL, it's not even funny. Of the 8 million better solutions, this is the one they went with. We'll just swap rosters. So 
all whatever, 50 guys on the blitz and 50 guys on the regular swap for each other. And, I mean, it's just insanity times a thousand. And some of my favorite side notes of that are, number one, the blitz then hire Marv Media as their head coach. This is pre-Buffalo. And he comes in, but nobody told him about the trade. <laughs> so he thinks he's acquiring, inheriting this team with, like, Greg Landry, a quarterback, and Tim Spencer, and Jermaine Johnson, he's a really good player. And he's getting the, you know, dog crud Arizona Wranglers dressed as the Blitz. He has no idea this is going to happen. Number two, the Blitz are taken over by a Chicago uh, physician named James Hoffman, who doesn't have nearly as much money as the team he thought. And after the second exhibition game, where very few people come to Soldier Field, he uh, decides he's done. And he and Dan Jiggett to the Blitz are walking off the field after the game. And uh, he said, Hoffman says to Jiggett, yeah, I'm, so I'm, 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 I'm out of here. And Jiggett's like, oh, where are you going? He's like, no, no, I'm out. I'm done with this team. I don't want to do this anymore. What? He literally just left the blitz on the side of the road. So he dumped them. He didn't sell them. He didn't trade them. He actually dumped them. He just left them there. Like a and, zombie uh, house. <laughs> yeah. And the USFL had to take over the blitz. And the funny thing is, so the USFL then fired anyone who was making any money. They fired the general manager who locked himself in his office. <laughs> and started calling all the local media and saying how batch, oh, I almost cursed, how insane, how insane it was in, uh, in Chicago. Like that you know, GM was George Costanza before right. George Costanza. You, you know, <laughs> exactly. There's a common wisdom that says what really killed the USFL was the decision to take the NFL on head on and have a fall yeah, schedule. Fall, yeah. Given everything, the way they ran, what are your thoughts, all the research you've done about whether the league would have survived longer, let alone, I'm not saying would have survived to this day, would have survived longer and so how long if they'd stayed with a spring schedule instead of trying to move to the fall and challenge the NFL? Oh, there's no doubt about it. Now, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean they would have lasted 100 years. It doesn't mean they'd be around right now. But, uh, yeah, the first year of the Spring League, people look back. You know, people who from the USFL who like Trump or who voted for Trump, they kind of make a lot of excuses for him. And they'll say, well, we were in trouble anyway, and blah, blah, blah. They were in trouble. They struggled. They lost a lot of money the first year. But what they don't mention is that was part of the plan, and those are parts of the expectations. Like, you weren't going to start a spring league, start a football team, and make money your first year. That was preposterous. Um, and the spring idea was, was, was good. They had markets that were mistakes. Washington was a disaster. Chicago was a disaster. Jacksonville was awesome. Memphis was awesome. Birmingham was awesome. Um, and if they'd stayed the course, I just think it would have lasted longer. And what I, I believe, and a lot of people affiliated with the league tend to believe, is 1987, you have the NFL player strike. We, they have the replacement players. If the USFL is around then, just two more years, you have a lot of defections. You have football chaos, football anarchy. Uh, nobody knows what's going on. And I think ultimately you would have had the NFL absorbing Jacksonville, the Baltimore Stars, the Memphis Showboats, maybe the Birmingham Stangs, and interestingly, maybe putting a team in New York City, uh, which probably would have been Donald Trump's team. Uh, team. So this is sort of the, 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 like the ABA ending. That there would come a time that yep. would emerge yep. and certain teams would survive and others wouldn't. You know, yes. It's funny that you say you're a fan, but I remember watching some of the games because the Mets had a, a prospect, you know, a third-base prospect, D.J. Dozier, 
who yep. like also played in the USFL. He played eventually in the NFL and never really made it as a Met. But like that was our big thing. Like the Mets are finally gonna have like this two sport star, and he turned out to be nothing. And even from a, a local standpoint, people might not even realize this, but on that 1986 Super Bowl champion Giants, it had Sean Lendetter as the punter, Bart Oates at center. Both won the USFL championship the year before with the Philadelphia Stars, a team that everyone was convinced could beat their NFL counterpart, the Eagles. Um, other NFL alum, Morris, Maurice Carthen, was a blocking back on that team, and Chris Godfrey. There are lots of guys who played in the USFL that would have played in the NFL even if the USFL never existed. But the league also provided a chance for guys that couldn't make it in the Canadian Football League. And I guess the poster boy for that is Sam Mills. But how important was the USFL to Sam, and are there others like Sam? I mean, to me, Sam Mills should be in the Hall of Fame. And because if you take his NFL stats, he was either a five- or six-time pro bowler. And you add that he was the best defensive player in the USFL, a three-time All-USFL, and goes down as one of the greatest middle linebackers of all time. I, to me, it's, it's, he should be in. And um, Sam Mills was cut by the Toronto Argonauts. He was cut by the Cleveland Browns. Uh, he was teaching um, photo and woodshop at East Orange High School in New Jersey. And Sam Ritigliano, the coach of the Browns, called Carl Peterson, the coach, the GM of the Stars, and said, uh, I got this guy you should sign, but you're going to see him and you're not going to want to sign him. Like, what do you mean? He's like, well, he's five foot nine middle linebacker. And Peterson immediately, I'm not signing a five nine middle linebacker. He's like, just just watch him, sign him, put him in pads, see what you see. So Peterson tells Jim Moore, Jim Moore goes, I don't sign a no five nine middle linebacker. What are you talking about? Just watch him, just watch him. Well, they signed Sam Mills, and he's, for my money, I did a ranking uh, a few weeks ago of the best twenty five players in the USFL, and I have Mills at number one. I think he was a he's just a dazzling, breathtaking linebacker, and he is. He's spending his career teaching photo if, that's, if the USFL doesn't come along. And, of course, he went on to have a great career at the Saints and Panthers. So there are a lot of guys. I mean, there are a lot. Nate Newton. Nate Newton yeah. had been in camp with the Redskins before the USFL. He was a fat, lazy, didn't-like-him offensive lineman, you know. And he plays in the USFL, and here he is. You know, there, there are a ton of JoJo Town sell. Really set, he went on to have a really good career at the Jets. Jets. Like, set himself apart in the USFL. There are a ton of guys who just sort of, I mean, almost 200 guys from the USFL went to the NFL, so it wasn't a fluke. Um, yeah, they were, I mean, they were, the Mills story is, is great, but there are a lot of Mills stories in the USFL. It's also interesting because, like all other rival leagues, the existing league that, you know, once those leagues fold, co opts some of their ideas, whether it be the three-point line of the ABA, the European style of the WHA. The USFL had some, some innovations as well. It was the first place that allowed coaches to challenge calls as well as institute the two-point conversion. Um, and obviously they were the ones that really let the over-the-top, which I'm not so sure is a good thing, the over-the-top the touchdown celebrations. Um, what impact do you think the style of play of the USFL had on the NFL? Well, I think the bigger, when you're just talking about style of play, I would say the biggest impact, you have to go to uh, Houston and Jim Kelly and the Houston Gamblers. Um, they were running, they were running Mouse Davis's run and shoot offense that he really sort of developed at Portland State with Neil Lomax back in the late seventies. So Kelly was playing, you know, he was dropping back and he had four and five wide receiver sets. You never saw the NFL. I was just watching. I was kind of curious, so I started watching some eighties games on YouTube the other day, and it's really startling how whether it was the Jets with Freeman McNeil or the Raiders with Marcus Allen or the Bengals with uh, Pete, uh, Pete Johnson. They were all running almost the exact same set. Two wide receivers, fullback, halfback, tight end, quarterback. And everything was coming out of that. And the gamblers came along, 
and it was Kelly dropping back, wide receivers crisscrossing left and right, three-step drops instead of five, uh, quick releases, dynamic offenses. And I really think that in and of itself uh, changed the way sort of the NFL uh, played offense. And actually, if you watch, when Jim Kelly finally went to the Buffalo Bills, they started running no huddle offense, and he was calling plays from the line. And they have people, NFL announcers, are acting like it was this revolutionary thing that no one had ever seen before. If you watch the Houston Gamblers, you saw it all the time. It's how they played. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you conducted well over 400 interviews for this book. I know from doing my Kiner's Corner book and the two current books. Now, does that count the ones you did in high school, or is that just recently? No, I didn't do any For this book, right. I know from doing my Kiner's Corner book and the two books that I'm currently working on that some of the most gratifying moments while doing a project like that is unearthing a great story that no one knows about and then tracking down someone either on the periphery of that story or someone that's directly involved in that story. And I want to know, out of all these interviews, what was the holy crap moment, this is friggin' awesome? Well, I mean, for me, we talked about Greg Fields, but yeah. to me it was, it was like, I, no one knew where he was. No one could find him. And I, um, I had two addresses, that's it. And I uh, had two addresses, and I said to my son, we live in Southern California, and the addresses were in San Francisco. And I said to my son, Emmett, who's nine, but he's kind of my sidekick in the USFL. <laughs> I was like, how about we uh, want to go find Greg Fields? He had some time off from school for something. And he's like, yeah, okay, let's do it. <laughs> and we drove, and I had two addresses, and we stayed in a hotel. And first address, we decided we were going to walk all over San Francisco. And we're walking and walking and walking, walking through some really bad areas, just getting really dicey. A lot of, like, under bridges that smell like piss and fields with broken bottles. And I'm looking like worst dad ever. We get to this house. Turns out the house was in a major sort of drug den. That wasn't so great either. But nobody answered, and there was a lockbox. Then I had another address, and uh, it was in the projects, and it was going to be at night, so I left my son at home. Uh, I left my son with friends in San Francisco. And I got there and knocked on the door, and a woman answered. She's very nice. And I said, I'm looking for Greg Fields, blah, 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 blah. And she said, uh, well, he's not here, but I'm his sister. He doesn't live here, but if you give me your number, I can at least try to get it to him. I was like, great. I didn't have any expectations. And then 20 minutes later, I was driving home, and he called me. And I was like, oh, my God. I can't. <laughs> There's nobody. This is my, my line, but I really mean it. No one's ever more excited to talk to you than me. Greg Fields, nobody's ever wanted to talk to you more than I do right now. And we wound up meeting the next day in Sacramento in a shopping mall food court at a Coldstone Creamery. Wow. There's me, my son Emmett, dressed in a Walter Payton jersey, and Greg Fields talking about the USFL. It was freaking the best. And somewhere around the corner hiding was Nelson Mercado, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, awesome. as you know, AJ and I have been longtime fans of your work, going back to June 16th, 2003, when these words, my son has not always been a freak, says Terry Behan, which is funny because in actuality, he is not a freak. He is the freak. freak. It is a small but important detail. That starts your Newsday article, The Land of the Freak, Pow, Pop, Paintballs, Pelt, a Prince of the Park. We've had you on our show for many of your great books. Um, this one for me, though, is you at your freak best. The style is very similar to the tone of that as well as your blog posts. I, I kind of get the feeling that you had the most fun doing this book than any of your other projects. Am I just imagining that, or is there any truth to that? First of all, it's super weird that you pulled out that freak story of all the examples of the Thousands and thousands of stories I've properly written. 
That one, number one, I actually told my son, you know what's so funny? So my son is turning uh, 12 soon, and we're having a birthday party, and we're doing like a Nerf gun party. <laughs> and I said to him, because I've told him about that story before, I said, we should do like one of the things, we'll have like shoot the freak, and I'll dress up as a crazy person, and blah, 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 blah. So that's so funny that you brought that up. It doesn't, it, it's just so random. Um, you have to understand the history there's of that. A for, 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 that. There's, there's a backstory to that. There's a backstory to that on a baseball team that we were coaching, and we went to see the Cyclones play, and mm-hmm. we're walking the boardwalk. And Coney, and we come across shoot the freak. And this is long before you wrote the story. Right. Yeah. And and we took the kids who were what about fourteen at the time? No, they were twelve. It was they're, 14, they're old. They're twelve. They're, they're twelve. Twelve. Yeah. And and we took them and they, they those took boys are thirty years old. Now, yeah. Just, right. You know. They took turns yeah. shooting the freak, and we watched that. So then it had to be a year or two later that the story ran, and right. we both went crazy over. It. That's why we happen to remember that story because of the back the backstory. Yeah, and where is the freak today? That's the question. <laughs> he's, well, he's probably headlining on Broadway somewhere yeah, or something. Yeah, exactly. um, or, or yeah. working someplace with Greg Fields. Right. Uh, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe Greg Fields was a freak. Um, yeah, it was really fun. It's fun when you do something that, like, I mean, it's fun when you, you sort of pursue a dream, and then you get to do it, and there the expectations are your own. You know, like, it doesn't mean there's less pressure, but the expectations were my own. Like, I, nobody had any idea what a USFL book should be. No one really knew what it should look like. It wasn't like I, my agent or my publisher saying, well, will you, you make sure you find Greg Fields. Like, they didn't know or probably care to them. I only got this book because I wrote the Brett Favre book and they threw it in as a, I took a little less money to do Favre and they let me do this book. So there was a lot of freedom and it was just, it was just calling people and hearing about this sort of digging deep into my favorite, my, my favorite time period in life. You know, that's a whole... The best part of this all, when I really think about it, is nostalgia. Like, the best part of my job is nostalgia and digging back in time and being able to uncover stuff and look deeper into something. So, um, yeah, it was great. It really was great. It was, it was the polar opposite of my Roger Clemens book, which was my least favorite experience. <laughs> Didn't have the joy and splendor and wonder that this one did. Best place for people to get the book and maybe even some USFL swag? I've run out of swag. Uh, I've sadly, run out of swag. Well, that's you can good. get the book anywhere. That's good, though. Yeah. That means yeah. people are buying it. That's good. Where, where's the best place to get it? No, wherever. Your bookstore, Amazon, whatever works for you. And I'm just happy. To be totally honest, I really mean this. I don't care if people take out from the library. Like, I'm happy. <laughs> I'm happy if people learn about the U.S. about me. That's kind of the sum of it all. Well, Jeff, when you do the book signing and book review in Huntington with Donald Trump, <laughs> will be. Oh, man. No, I would Donald love that Trump's story would not be there, by the way. <laughs> uh, selfish question. I would not be. How many years does a sports talk radio or, or how many books does an author have to write to qualify them to be a subject of one of your quas? Uh, I actually have a quas rule. You know what it is? I swear to God. Uh-oh. I always say, and I've told this, I said, request to be a quas. They will, not, they will never be a quas. Uh, I didn't technically request. I just yeah. asked. What, what are the terms? Yeah, what are the terms? <laughs> you buy 30 bucks, you're in. How many? Uh, 50. 50. 50 bucks. bucks. Well, what just what, that's negotiating right there. Wait, like, did you say, wait, did did you 30, say write, write or buy? Buy. Oh, oh, all right. Well, well writing well, 50 well, bucks well. is much harder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, where's the best place for every, that, you know, for people that have never gone to your website, they, they're missing, and if they haven't followed you on Twitter, you want to give a shout-out where they can check that out. We lose you? Yes. Oh. No, I'm here. Oh, here. Best place to, to follow yeah. you? I'm at Jeff Perlman on Twitter and then JeffPerlman.com on uh, the interweb. 
awesome. Jeff, as always, thanks so much for your time tonight, and, and thank you for a totally enjoyable book. I mean, uh, other than the visual of the injury in the steamer trunk, it, it was great. <laughs> Stay away from trunks, though. Really. Stay away from trunks. You never know. You got it. Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Jeff Perlman, his current book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, available everywhere.